please keep your hymn books open as we will turn to the back, first of all, and then we'll open God's Word. We're going to go to the Canons of Dort at page 907, 907 in the back of your hymn book. And then we're going to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Just back to 906, the uh, third and fourth main points of doctrine, you see it there towards the bottom of the page. Article 1, the effect of the fall on human nature. Man was originally created in the image of God and was furnished in his mind with a true and salutary knowledge of his creator and things spiritual in his will and heart with righteousness, and of all his emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole man was holy. However, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation and by his own free will, he deprived himself of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, he brought upon himself blindness, terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in his mind, perversity, defiance, and hardness in his heart and will, and finally, impurity in all his emotions. Article 2. Man brought forth children of the same nature as himself after the fall. That is to say, being corrupt, he himself brought forth corrupt children. The corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all his descendants, except for Christ alone, not by way of imitation, as in former times the Pelagians would have it, but by way of the propagation of his perverted nature. Article 3. Therefore, all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such Reform, Article 4. There is, to be sure, a certain light of nature remaining in man after the fall, by virtue of which he retains some notions about God, natural things, and the difference between what is moral and immoral, and demonstrates a certain eagerness for virtue and for good outward behavior. But this light of nature is far from enabling man to come to a saving knowledge of God and conversion to him, so far, in fact, that man does not use it rightly even in matters of nature and society. Instead, in various ways, he completely distorts this light, whatever its precise character, and suppresses it in unrighteousness. In doing so, he renders himself without excuse before God. Please open your Bibles now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I'm going to read the verses 22 to 44. John 6 and verse 22. 
On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, however other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open there to that sixth chapter of John. Several weeks ago, in our study of Romans 3, verses 9 through 18, I pointed out to you that one of the most lively controversies of the 4th century was the Pelagian controversy. Pelagius taught that Adam's sin did not affect the entire human race. Therefore, he said, since man is not born sinful, he is able to do what God requires of him if he only wills to do so. 
Pelagius taught that man is born essentially good and capable of doing what is necessary to please God. Although grace is helpful in man's effort to attain moral perfection, it is not necessary. It is helpful, but it is not necessary. Pelagius argued that even though we may err, we remain basically good. We're all born in the same moral condition as Adam enjoyed before the fall. Man's will remains entirely free. People can choose to do good just as they can choose to do evil. People are born without a bias toward evil. Pelagius asserted that if God requires moral perfection, then men must be able to achieve it. It would be unjust on God's part to demand from his creatures what they are not able to do in their own strength. So Pelagius taught the essential goodness of man, and he denied human depravity. The most vigorous opponent of Pelagius was who? Augustine of Hippo. Augustine maintained that man in his fallen state is dead in sin. He said that grace is not merely helpful, but it is absolutely essential to please God. Augustine argued that salvation is totally by the grace of God. Mankind is a mass of sin, he said. And without the work of God's grace, we could do nothing to establish a right relationship with the Lord. Augustine insisted that every man since the fall of Adam is conceived and born in sin and can be delivered from his sin by grace alone. Fallen man is able only to sin. We cannot live without sinning. We do evil things because we are evil people. Man is not basically good, said Augustine. Man is corrupt. He cannot choose to do good. He can only choose to do evil. Man can no more return himself to God than an empty vessel can refill itself with water. We need the grace of God. Well, as you know, the controversy between Pelagius and Augustine went on for some time until finally the teachings of Pelagius were condemned at the Council of Carthage in 418. The position of Pelagius led to a denial of the absolute need for the unmerited grace of God in salvation. Augustine replied by saying, apart from grace, no one can be saved. Augustine won the day and the church supported him. But brothers and sisters, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, a similar battle erupted. This time, the combatants in the controversy were Martin Luther and a man named Erasmus. Erasmus said that the will must be free. Men have the ability to choose God or to reject God. Luther replied, absolutely not. We are wholly given over to sin, said Luther. We cannot choose God by our enslaved wills. Luther wrote a book against the views of Erasmus entitled The Bondage of the Will. If any of you wish to read it, I have it over here in my study. The Bondage of the Will. In that book, he alludes to the teaching of Augustine when he said, I quote, Man's will is like a beast standing between two riders. 
If God rides, he wills and goes where God wills. If Satan rides, it wills and goes where Satan wills. Nor may it choose to which rider it will run or which it will seek, but the riders themselves fight to decide who shall have and hold it. Luther said, yes, the will is free in, in matters which do not concern salvation. Man has the ability to make ordinary decisions to carry out his responsibilities in this world. But when it comes to the things of God and salvation, man's will is enslaved, said Luther. A similar controversy also erupted in the Netherlands in the middle of the 16th century. Jacob Arminius preached a series of sermons in which he raised some controversial points. One of the things he said was that man retains, even after the fall, a free will by which to obey or disobey the demands of the gospel. Man retains, even after the fall, a free will by which to obey or disobey the demands of the gospel. Arminius went on to attack the Reformed doctrine of predestination, and his teaching triggered a storm of controversy among the Reformed churches in the Netherlands. After his death in 1609, the followers of Arminius set forth their case in a series of summary statements, five articles often referred to as the five Arminian articles. Finally, to settle the debate, a synod was called, the Great Synod of Dort, 1618-19. The conclusion of the Synod was that the five Arminian articles were found to be contrary to the Word of God. Against the five Arminian articles, the Canons of Dort were formulated, setting forth the scriptural doctrine. The result is commonly known as the five points of Calvinism, or the five points of Reformed theology, or the doctrines of grace. The Synod of Dort understood that the doctrines of Arminianism were a serious departure from the truth. The sovereign grace of God in salvation was at stake. The point that we want to address this afternoon is the Arminian doctrine which declared that sinful man is only partially depraved. Partially depraved. The Arminian position stated that, yes, human nature has been seriously affected by the fall, but fallen human nature is not in a state of total spiritual helplessness. They maintain that unregenerate men have the God-given ability to repent and believe. The sinner retains a free will, and his eternal destiny depends upon the way he uses it. Let me say that again. The sinner retains a free will, and his eternal destiny depends upon the way he uses it. Although the Arminian position was not full-blown Pelagianism, it is closely related to Pelagianism. As Calvinism can be traced back to Augustine, so Arminianism can be traced back to Pelagius. As Pelagius denied total depravity, so Arminianism essentially denies total depravity. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't want to just give you a history lesson this, this afternoon on, on Augustine versus Pelagius, or Luther versus uh, Erasmus, or Arminius versus the Synod of Dort. We want to ask the question, what did our Lord Jesus teach on the issue of total depravity? 
Although there has been a remarkable revival of Reformed theology in the last number of years, I suspect it is still accurate to say that the majority of Christians today and the majority of churches are semi-Pelagian or Arminian. Although they may not use those words and perhaps have never even heard of those words, they have embraced the doctrine. So who is right? Was Augustine right? Was Luther right? Were the leaders of the Reformation right? Was the Synod of Dort right? Is man totally ruined by his fall into sin? Or did he fall only partially? Does it really matter? Is our salvation by grace alone? Does it really matter? Does salvation depend upon the free choice of the sinner? Or is this just theological hair-splitting, something to keep theologians busy? Well, let's have a look at our text, John 6, 44. We want to consider the problem of total inability, the remedy for total inability, and conclude with the question, what is your response to total inability? We begin with the problem. Look with me, please, in your Bibles to John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. What is Jesus saying here? In the beginning of John 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two small fish. The people who witnessed it were amazed and said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. The crowd wanted to take him by force and make him king. When Jesus perceived their intentions, he departed, and during the night he walked on the sea, joined his disciples in the boat, and went to Capernaum. The following day, many of the people also crossed the sea and came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. Jesus then taught them that what they needed was something more than bread for the body. They needed what? They needed the living bread. Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus called them to himself. They needed to trust in him for salvation. They needed to understand that he was the Messiah sent into the world to save sinners. But sadly, we read in verse 41, go there, verse 41, that the Jews murmured, complained about him. They grumbled and would not receive him as the living bread which came down from heaven. They said, he's the son of Joseph, the carpenter. How can he say, I have come down from heaven? We know his family. We know his background. How can he make such outrageous claims? They did not believe. It was in this setting that Jesus spoke the words of our text, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, brothers and sisters, it's not difficult to see in this passage. In this passage, Jesus was asserting the doctrine of total depravity, total inability. Jesus' words are straightforward. Man does not have the ability to come to Christ unless he is drawn by the Father. 
as a result of the fall in Adam, all people in themselves are guilty, corrupted, and hopelessly lost. The fall left man totally unable to respond positively to the things of God. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, we are dead. Before the fall, Adam had a close, loving, intimate relationship with the Lord. He was able to commune with him. He was able to to respond rightly to the will of God and to live in joyful fellowship, unbroken communion. But after the fall, everything changed. Sin affected every part of man's being so that now man is unable to do anything that is spiritually good. In the state of sin, man cannot return to God or be reconciled with God by his own initiative. In and of ourselves, we can do nothing that will contribute to our return to God. Every part of man has been affected. Our mind, our affections, and our will. Canons of Dort, third and fourth main points of doctrine. Article 1 says it this way. However, rebelling against God, at the devil's instigation, and by his own free will, he deprived himself of or forfeited these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place, he brought upon himself blindness, terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in his mind, perversity, defiance, and hardness in his heart and will, And finally, impurity in all his emotions or affections. What does that mean? Well, it means that man is corrupt in his mind, will, and emotions. No part of his nature remains uncorrupted or unaffected by sin. In everything he does, he is a slave to sin. Now, does that mean that man is incapable of doing anything good in this world? Can fallen humanity do nothing of value? Certainly fallen humanity is able to do good things from a human viewpoint. The human race is able to do noble things. An unregenerate, unsaved person can love his family. He can be a good citizen of his country. He can donate a million dollars to famine relief. He may perhaps restrain himself from drunkenness, adultery, or murder. An unregenerate, unsaved person can be an excellent doctor saving the lives of many, or a devoted nurse who works tirelessly to improve people's lives. There are excellent firefighters who risk themselves to rescue others from burning buildings. The reformers referred to this as works of civil virtue. Works of civil virtue, deeds that conform outwardly to the law of God. Yes, from a human viewpoint, people are capable of doing many good and noble deeds. Article 4 of the canon says it this way. There is, to be sure, a certain light of nature remaining in man after the fall, by virtue of which he retains some notions about God, natural things, and the difference between what is moral and immoral, and demonstrates a certain eagerness for virtue and for good outward behavior. 
But brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches that unregenerate people can do nothing, nothing that can satisfy God. None of our works, none of our noble deeds are spiritually acceptable. Works that are not done in true faith, according to God's law and for his glory, are not regarded as good in the sight of the Lord. They may appear to be good in the sight of man, but they do not satisfy a holy and righteous God. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 3, quoting from Psalm 14, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. The Scriptures tell us that the mind is darkened with respect to spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see, the mind is darkened. Scripture also tells us that the will is in bondage to sin. People always make the wrong choice in spiritual matters, as Paul indicates in Romans 3. Furthermore, his affections and emotions are corrupted. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Because of his desperately wicked state, the sinner is completely incapable of doing any spiritual good. The Bible describes man in sin as spiritually dead, blind and enslaved to the dominion of sin. The Word of God commands men to repent and believe the gospel. He cannot be saved unless he repents and believes in Jesus. Yet because of his corruption, he is of himself unable to do so. He cannot repent, he cannot believe, cannot choose God. Congregation, isn't this precisely what Jesus declared in the words of our text? No one can come to me. No one. No one. There are no exceptions. No one in the, in the universe has the ability to come to Christ. The people of verses 41 and 42 who ate the bread provided by Jesus and heard his teaching did not come to him. Instead, they murmured among themselves. Their corrupt nature hindered them from coming. Their darkened minds, enslaved wills, and corrupted emotions prevented them. Although the Son of God performed mighty deeds in their midst, and preached powerful, gripping sermons they could not understand, could not choose him, could not love him. They responded according to their nature. One of my seminary professors said, he said, consider a sheep and a vulture in a field of grass in which there is the carcass of a dead dog. The sheep will eat the grass, the vulture will eat the dog. Why? Simply because their choice is governed by their nature. 
Will man then, with darkened mind and corrupted affections, choose Christ and the way of holiness if left to his own free will? No! Governed by his sinful nature and left to himself, he always makes the wrong choice. Congregation, the men and women who rejected Jesus in verses 41 and 42 did so because their choice was governed by their nature, their fallen nature. Men, women, and children who reject Jesus today do so for the same reason. Governed by their own sinful nature, they choose to reject the truth like a vulture whose nature chooses the carcass of a dead dog. If left to ourselves... That would be true for each and every one of us. You would not come to Christ. I would not come to Christ. Our children would not come to Christ. As a vulture chooses to eat a carcass, so we fallen sinners, if left to ourselves, choose the way of sin and wickedness. We cannot and will not repent and believe. We do not have the ability to come to Christ or become a true Christian. Well, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? If we're dead, blind, and enslaved to sin, living in horrible darkness, what then? Notice, secondly, the remedy for total inability. The remedy. Look again at verse 44. No one can come to me Unless, unless points to a necessary condition. What is that necessary condition? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In order for fallen sinners to come to Christ, God the Father must do something. What must he do? He must draw the sinner. But what is meant by draw? In the debate between Luther and Erasmus, Erasmus said that God draws people in the same way that the owner of a donkey might get it to move by holding a handful of carrots before its nose. The owner of the donkey draws, but the will of the donkey is involved. The donkey has the ability to resist and refuse the enticement. Luther said, no, that is not what Scripture teaches. The will of man is so corrupted that he cannot respond to that kind of drawing. A dead donkey does not move when a handful of carrots are held before its nose. A dead donkey has no appetite for carrots. He's not attracted to them. Well, congregation, what did Jesus mean when he used the word draw? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. According to the Greek dictionary, it means to compel by irresistible superiority. To compel by irresistible superiority. To compel is much more than merely holding a handful of carrots before a donkey's nose in the hope that the donkey will move. The same Greek word is used in Acts 16, verse 19, where men seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. 
The word that is translated dragged in Acts 16 is the same word as draw in our text. The word is also used in James 2 verse 6 where we read, But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. Again, the word that is translated drag in James 2 verse 6 is the same word as draw in our text. When you think of Paul and Silas being dragged into the marketplace, and when you think of the rich dragging the poor into the courts, then you get a better understanding of what the Father does in drawing fallen, helpless sinners to Christ. He draws them with irresistible superiority. Congregation, if you are a Christian this afternoon, it's not because you responded rightly to the carrot that God held before you. That you responded rightly to his enticement. If you're a Christian, it's not because you responded favorably to the outward pull or tug of the preaching of the word. No, if you are a believer, it is because the Father drew and taught you inwardly. The Father drew you in such a way that he overpowered your stubbornness overcame your resistance, and so worked in your heart to make you willing and pleased to come to Christ. The Lord God changed your rebellious nature and created in your heart a desire for Christ. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, it is only because God the Father successfully and triumphantly overcame your resistance and made you receptive to the things of God. When we understand this, brothers and sisters, then we stand in awe of his grace. You did not come to Christ. You could not come to Christ. It was the Father who drew and taught you inwardly so that you came. You're not a Christian because you decided on your own to be a follower of Christ. You are a Christian because God graciously drew you to the Savior he taught you inwardly. Arminianism asserts that man's choice is the crucial difference between those who are saved and those who are lost. I mentioned a few weeks ago in my Tuesday night class, that classic Arminian line, God votes for you, Satan votes against you, and you cast the deciding ballot. God votes for you, Satan votes against you, and you cast the deciding ballot. Arminianism teaches man's ability to accept God's invitation. But the Bible asserts that the crucial difference between those who are saved and those who are lost is not man's choice. The crucial difference between the saved and the lost is God's grace. God's grace. Arminius did not deny that salvation was by grace, but he denied that it was all of grace. He denied that we, that we make no move toward God unless God first draws us. He denied that we cannot call upon the eternal God for mercy unless God is first of all active in changing and leading our wills to embrace the Lord Jesus for salvation. 
Brothers and sisters, in the words of our text, we are reminded that in ourselves, we have no hope. We cannot choose Christ, but God is able to do what we cannot do. He can draw us and cause us to see the glory and the beauty of the Savior. He can bring us to our knees before Jesus Christ. The remedy for total depravity, total inability, is the sovereign grace of God. As John Newton said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Is that your confession this afternoon? It is God the Father who sovereignly draws us to Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, dear friends, for those whom the Father draws, there is a wonderful promise in verse 44. You see it there? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Here's the promise. And I will raise him up at the last day. On that day of judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ will raise up those whom the Father has drawn and he will grant them a life of eternal glory. Those who of themselves deserve death are raised to eternal life. Those who deserve damnation are raised to everlasting blessedness, raised to eternal, eternal communion with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I will raise him up at the last day. Congregation, if you have been the recipient of God's sovereign grace, that this promise is for you. You will be raised up to everlasting glory. No one who is drawn by the Father to the Lord Jesus will ever be lost. Look back to verse 39. Verse 39. Jesus said, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Those who are blessed by the supernatural work of God's grace in the soul to enlighten the mind, to reorder the affections, and to liberate the will so that they understand the gospel and come to Jesus Christ, they will be raised up at the last day to eternal fellowship with God. What an amazing privilege to be drawn by the Father to Jesus Christ, a wonder of grace, sovereign grace. And so I conclude this afternoon with this question, point number three. What is your response to the biblical doctrine of total inability? What is your response to the biblical doctrine of total inability? There are some who are very offended when they hear this doctrine. Even within the professing church, there are those who believe that people are basically good. They don't like to hear about total depravity. They don't like to believe that our natural inclination is to flee from God as Adam did in the garden after he sinned. They don't like to believe that the unregenerate cannot seek after God. 
It hurts man's pride when he is told that he has nothing to contribute to salvation and that he does not have the ability to come to Christ. The doctrine of moral inability has offended many people and there are those who have rejected Reformed theology because of it. In fact, in this very chapter, John 6, we read of those who were offended by this doctrine. Look down to verses 65 and 66. 65 and 66. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Now look at verse 66. What's the response? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They no longer followed him. Why were they offended by Jesus' words? Why did they leave him? Because they were not prepared to accept the doctrine of total inability and the need for complete dependence on God's grace alone. Dear friends, I ask you, how do you respond to this doctrine. If you're a child of God, then you should be deeply humbled. You were dead, but God raised you. You were blind, but God gave you sight. You were a slave to sin, but God removed the shackles. What an amazing, loving, gracious God. He has done everything for you from beginning to end. You had no desire for Christ, but the Father drew you to Him. You had no love for Christ, but the Father called you. You preferred your sin, but the Father transformed you. It is all of divine initiative and divine sovereignty. So by way of some concluding applications. What does this mean for our homes and for parents as they raise their children? First of all, we can testify to our children that our own salvation is all of grace. He raised me. He made me a new creation. He regenerated me by the power of the Holy Spirit. He caused the light to shine into my darkness. I was a rebel, an obstinate sinner, but he delivered me. My salvation is all of grace. We need to teach our children the wonder of grace. Secondly, we can be assured that the Father who softened our hearts and sovereignly drew us to Christ is able to do the same for our children. Article 3 of the Canons reminds us that like ourselves, our children are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins and slaves to sin. They are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform their distorted nature or even to dispose themselves to such reform. That's what our children are like by nature, by virtue of our union with Adam. A corrupt stock produced a corrupt offspring. But as God gave to us 
the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit to make us able and willing to turn to God so he is able to do for our children. As parents, we have the responsibility to teach our children in the ways of God, but he alone has the power to change their hearts, to bring them to faith, and to cause our children to be born again. Therefore, we need to commit our children and our grandchildren to the one who alone grants the gift of new birth, spiritual birth. Bring them before the throne of grace daily. Bring them before the throne of grace daily. Congregation, how humbling is this doctrine of total inability. This is a doctrine that humbled Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and those who participated in the Synod of Dort. May it humble each and every one of you and cause you to stand in awe of the grace of God in drawing undeserving sinners to Jesus Christ. We are saved by sovereign grace alone. Salvation is of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, our God, your word does not present us with a very optimistic picture of human nature. We recognize, Lord, that unless you open our minds and our hearts and our affections, we would be offended, as have many in the course of history been offended at hearing this doctrine. We pray that, Lord, you will in your mercy humble each and every one of us and our children Lord, that you will do that work, that you will draw each and every person here to Jesus Christ. That, Lord, you will change that hard heart, that you will take away the blindness, that you will raise each and every one from death to life. Lord, may we truly worship you for your kindness and grace in Christ Jesus. We deserve nothing. We have nothing to offer you. We come through the blood and merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, our God, we pray that you will use us so that others' eyes may also be opened and that they too may come and stand in awe of your sovereign grace. Receive the praises that we offer to you in the conclusion of this service. May we go our way with great delight in Jesus Christ 
in the work of the Holy Spirit, in you, our Father, drawing us to Jesus Christ. We worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask that we will depart from here with joy in our hearts. This we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.